Okay, Annie, something definitely weird is happening. No one's here, the Dean is mad at me, and he's never mad at me again. A third reason. Look, up on the building, the spider woman! Jessica Drew, who was a child while visiting her father's laboratory, was bitten by a poisonous spider. Thanks for meeting me, Doc. I've been reading about you. Sure enough, I got here. Have to do a Spider-Man, I think. I'm still figuring this place out, but I think a bunch of guys like us should team up. Intriguing. Hello. And welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks, a movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. This time, we're stepping outside the Marvel Cinematic Universe and into Sony's Spider-Verse for a look at Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, released in June 2023, when, if you preferred, you could have gone to see Mike Lee announcing filming had started on this secretive new project, Brian De Palma announcing yet again that filming for Sweet Vengeance will begin soon, or Jenna Elfman on Daily Blast Live instead. I'm Tim Worthington, and well... We aren't really sure where Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse takes place in relation to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. They've given us some clues, but they actually make it make even less sense. Anyway, this is what I had to say after I saw Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. Double thumbs up. It isn't just more of the same, it doesn't even use the same animation styles, and there are some neat crossovers with the MCU and a couple of cameos nobody saw coming, and a genuine surprise at the end. Seriously, the entire audience was shouting, what, you're kidding, etc. en masse. Even Ken Loach might get excited. That's what I had to say about it, though. And joining me to give his thoughts on Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is quiz expert David Smith. David, where can people find you? People can find me on Twitter. It's where I spend about 90% of my day. I'm at a new handle. I'm at David underscore Strathd, which is S-T-R-A-T-H-D-E-E. So come and follow me in there and get bombarded with lots of terrible puns. Okay, so before we go any further, speaking of terrible puns, David, what happens in Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse? Okay, people, let's go over this one more time. (laughs) His name is Miles Morales. Her name is Gwen Stacy. His name is Miguel O'Hara. Her name is Jessica Drew. His name is Pavitar Prabhakar. His name is Hobie Brown. His name is Peter B. Parker. And her name is Little Baby Mayday Parker. They, along with hundreds and hundreds of others, were all bitten by radioactive spiders. And since the last film in 2018, they've all been the one and only Spider-Man. I think you know the rest. Except now, because of Wilson Fisk's Super Collider shenanigans in the last film, two things have happened. The multiverse has been ripped open and villains from various universes are crossing over, causing Miguel O'Hara to form an elite team of spider people to set things right. And at the same time, we find out that an employee of Wilson Fisk's at Alchemax got turned by the Super Collider into a walking, faceless, humanoid void called The Spot, who can create portals between spaces and eventually between universes. So it's up to Miles, Gwen and the other spider people to travel across the Spider-Verse, name drop, to stop him. 
At the same time, Gwen is on the run after her father discovered her secret identity. And Miles is wrestling with his story as a Spider-Man and trying to prevent the supposedly inevitable death of his father, which, according to the laws of the Spider-Verse, is a canon event and must happen to preserve the fabric of the universe and all the others. Along the way, we meet basically every Spider-Person ever created. We're treated to the best-looking animated film ever made, and we are left on a dastardly cliffhanger, leaving us counting down the days until beyond the Spider-Verse next year. Okay, well, to save me asking what you knew about the various Spider-People before you saw this, and kind of doing away with the whole podcast within the second question, (laughs) David, what did you know about the spot before you saw this? I think I'd heard the name. I think because you do hear about speculation of all these Spider films. I don't know if I've ever fought the spot in one of the Spider-Man PlayStation games, but yeah, I do remember people talking about, because we're getting into, now that we've had so much Spider-Man content in the last 20 years across all the media, we are getting into the more obscure villains. And I don't know if I've ever encountered the spot before, but from what I heard, from what I understand, the spot was another one of those ones that was kind of like a wacky, like he says in the film, a kind of villain of the week kind of thing. And it's like, you're not scary at all. And then suddenly he becomes, you know, potentially multiverse destroying. So uh, yeah, I really enjoyed him. I thought he was good fun. Well, that's exactly it. The spot in the comics annoys people like Kingpin as much as he does the vigilantes like the Black Cat. He once formed a team called the Legion of Losers with other kind of (laughs) no hope of villains. And I just thought, that is a deep cut. That is another character that I would not have guessed that anyone would have brought into it. And they've done it really well, like you say, without breaking the character, without making him in himself threatening or frightening. They made his abilities threatening, frightening. I don't even think he knows what he wants to do to Miles. He just wants some kind of revenge and he's not quite sure what it is, what form it should take or how far it should go. And because of that, he's all the more dangerous. Yeah, he's kind of, because he actually, he does mention that we see him in the first Spider-Verse film because Peter B. Parker throws a bagel at him as he's escaping from the Alchemex headquarters. But it does seem like he just, the story behind him is he gets caught in the Super Collider and he basically loses all of his appearance. He's just a humanoid blob. And so he kind of starts wanting to exact revenge on, this is the thing about all of these villains, these like secondary villains that we see in all these superhero films. They never want to exact revenge on the person who's responsible for it. They don't want to exact revenge on Wilson Fisk, who built the damn thing in the first place. He wants to exact revenge on Spider-Man, who happened to be there when it happened. So yeah, he just, he starts exacting revenge on Miles for no apparent motive beyond I've lost my face and someone must pay for it. And then he just sort of, yeah, he escalates and then he gets more and more powerful and, you know, the power must go to his head, I guess, because st- that's the only thing he still has. And then it gets to the point where it gets to the end of the film and he starts, he's going after Miles' father. He's making it personal despite not really having any connection with it. Because you don't know his motives, you don't know what he's going to do next. And he's played really well by Jason Schwartzman. He's almost, he's got that kind of wacky kind of tone where this is all, he's quite petulant, you know, he wants to be taken seriously, but he doesn't really know what he's doing or it's really good fun. And they play off his comic relief, but also how scary the potential is really well. One thing we should say just at the outset before we forget to mention it is this was originally supposed to come out early in 2022 and it got delayed because of the pandemic. And it's interesting to look at, I think, most of the problems that Marvel itself is having with their films and TV series at the moment can be traced back to the pandemic and the fact that they had so much on the go at one time when it all kicked off that everything sort of, ironically, sort of collided into each other like one big (laughs) universe and turned into a bit of a mess, whereas Sony just had a couple of things on the table... And while the effect they had on Morbius is a different 
haven't questioned or that that at least has left us with an interesting story we haven't got to the bottom of yet what exactly was changed and when and why but i think that First of all, Venom let there be carnage. They've made no secret the fact that they went back and recut that quite heavily during the Enforced Break and made it a much better movie, in my opinion, than it probably would have been. I don't mind the first Venom, but the second one is so much better. But this, they clearly used that extra time to give it that bit more care and attention in a way that I would say, what if really didn't? Yeah, 100%. And the amount of care that's gone into it, because firstly, speaking of Morbius, I have seen someone talking online about how this film can explain why Vulture appears in the Morbius post credit scene, because they're saying that he was an incursion caused by the Super Collider from the MCU into the Morbius verse. And that explains why he's suddenly making a cameo in a different universe. Yeah, it's the fact that they've been working on at this whole time and whereas Marvel I think with the MCU they have gone through a bit of I do think they bit off a bit more than they could chew especially with 2021 because they got through the pandemic backlog and because they had so much content where especially in 2021 they were releasing something new every single week of that year whether it was a TV show episode or a film or something and they thought we've got to keep up this pace we've got to keep it up because now people expect something every single week and they worked their visual effects artists to the bone trying to get all this stuff out and the quality did kind of suffer and also it was causing people to feel a bit overwhelmed by it all and so I like when I'll use this analogy a couple of times I've been playing a lot of the new Legend of Zelda recently they delayed that game several times in order to make it as good as they possibly could and make it as polished as possible because they would rather release a game that was perfect rather than one that was now after Spider-Verse came out all the sort of behind the scenes of the animations and things was being posted on Twitter by the animators and things like that and it was the character of Hobie Brown Spider-Punk. Someone posted that he alone took three years to animate. One of the animators, Chelsea Gordon Ratzlaff, posted a tweet about their rules for Hobie and how they made Hobie look so visually different from everyone else. Because one of the things that people might not know about the first film is that Miles is off frame from everyone else. So in the animation, in the film, it runs at 24 frames per second and all of the other spider people are animated on every other frame. And Miles, to represent him being sort of disconnected from the rest, is animated on every other frame and for Hobie they had him animated on so many different frames at once like his body was on every third frame his guitar was on every fourth frame his outline was on every second frame and just the amount of detail and care to try and make it look just as perfect as they possibly could because they are dealing with so many different animation styles like the renaissance vulture right at the start like that was how do you do that it's like paper come to life it's absolutely fantastic it was like I say I think this is the best animated film it's the best looking animated film I've ever seen and it makes it especially when you consider that Pixar used to be considered the king of the animated film when they've kind of churned out the same their films look really good don't get me wrong but every single film kind of looks the same these days whereas Spider-Verse is doing new things every five minutes it seems like and I would much rather and I feel this with games and everything else as well I would rather a game take five years or a film take five years and be that good than have something like the MCU is kind of doing where they're trying to rush out a sequel or what the Star Wars sequel trilogy did where they put in the release date before they'd even started writing the films like we've got to get a film out every two years and because of that deadline it's rushed 
And I love the fact that they took so much care in making that film as good as it could get. Well, just mentioning Hobie, that is a detail that I only found out the other day that I really loved. It shows how much thought has gone into this. It was apparently they based his look and his universe, I suppose, on specifically British punk rock singles from the late 70s. Not album covers, single covers. The ones where you get, say, like a black and white photocopy of St. Paul's set against the two-shade neon background. Yeah. And it does look, it's got that energy. It just bursts out like that. And what really struck me about the whole thing, though, was that in the first one, I didn't really think of this until I saw Across the Spider-Verse. It's very much focused around the fact that Miles is a gangly teenager. It's like the animation style. Everything about it, everything about the framing style, is trying to keep up with this gawky kid who's tumbling about a lot, who isn't comfortable in his own body. And in this one, it's more elegant. It's literally got a broader view of the world. You know, everything's sort of bunched up and boxed in in his line of vision in the first one. This one, it's like he's grown up a bit and the animation has grown up with him. And that really, from the outset, makes it clear that this is, you know, it's a continuation of the first one, but it's its own thing. And what an amazing sort of attention to detail. What a brilliant thing to pull off. It's so good. And I love the fact that it's not just Miles's story anymore because the first 20 minutes of the film, we see Gwen and we see Gwen's universe and the entire first, it must be the first 20 minutes or so, takes place in Gwen's story. And we don't see Miles at all. The protagonist of the film, the protagonist of the series, and we don't see him for the first, almost the first half an hour of the film, which is a really bold choice. And it was really cementing. They wanted to say, this is a team movie. This is just as much Gwen's story as it is Miles Gwen has her own arc through the whole thing. She has her own visual style as well, the sort of pastel colours that you see in all of her scenes. It's interesting because this is obviously the first part of a two-part film and it was announced as that. It was Well, it was originally announced they were making a sequel and then they started making it, realised we can't fit all this into two hours so they split it into two parts and it means that every character in this colossal film has room to breathe. Now, I would argue that this film is actually a little slower than the first film because of that. There are certain scenes where I felt like it slowed down a little bit too much. Like It, it felt like it had the pacing of a four-hour film at times, particularly the scenes with Miles' parents on the rooftop party. Like There's not any action in it for about something like 20-25 minutes. And whereas the first film is snappy and perfect, I would say, I still think it's a, one of the only films I can describe as perfect. And this one, because it allows itself room to breathe a bit, it does feel a little bit slower, but you do get more time with the characters than you would have if they were trying to cram everything in. Because films like, for example, Infinity War, I love Infinity War, but it's pretty much action beats the entire way and there's not much in the realm of character development because that's all been done in the previous films. And this one, which is another film on that kind of scale, it feels like it's not just Miles' story, it's Gwen's story, it's Pavita's story. There's so many different people. Writing that alone must have been such an enormous task to pull off and do everybody justice. And I think they do a fantastic job of it. I was impressed at how much character depth they give to his parents. They're a lot more understandable and relatable than the first one, particularly his mother. It really explores who she actually is and why she is the way she is towards Miles. I think that really comes off. I will say I'm not bowled over by the idea of potential. It's very heavily into that romantic attachment between Miles and Gwen. Yeah. I 
yes. don't know if I quite won that, especially hot on the heels of, we shouldn't really be talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 in this, but I was a little bit disappointed that they didn't pick up the obvious thing that was there, which would fit the Gamora and Nebula storyline and rivalry so clearly that, you know, if Gamora wasn't interested in Peter anymore, Nebula would probably, you know, present-day Nebula would think, hang on, you know, that's a very eligible man I like a lot on the market, I mean, yeah. and my sister I mean, doesn't want him, but here it feels <laughs> a little bit The choices are forced. him or a tree, yeah. as we know. <laughs> But this feels a little almost like they're thinking it's what people want, and I'm not sure it necessarily is. I think you're right there. And I remember us talking on the Into the Spider-Verse podcast about how we liked the fact that nothing happened between them. And I'm wondering if, because they they're both teenagers, so maybe this is just them sort of figuring out themselves and figuring out if this is what they want. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt, given that we haven't actually seen the resolution of the story. And also, I mean, Gwen mentions in the film that anytime Spider-Man and Gwen Stacy get together, it doesn't end well for one of them. So they're aware of that. They're aware that they don't want to follow as much as they go on and on about how every Spider-Man has to have certain canonical events in their life that are unavoidable. They are well aware of not trying to retread the cliches. That's the entire thing, because this is what is this, the 10th Spider-Man film we've had since 2001? They're well aware of not trying to retread old ground. So I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. But I am a little nervous because, again, Gwen is almost the protagonist of this film. She is the protagonist of this film for the first 20 minutes. And actually, seeing the start of this film made me want to see a Spider-Woman solo film. I just want to see Gwen do her thing on her own for two hours. She is still my favourite character in the whole thing. I think she's superb. And I would be a little disappointed if they just had them become a couple again. Unless maybe it happens organically. You know, Again, I'll just give them the benefit of the doubt. We'll see what happens and we'll reconvene next spring after the third one comes out. Well, mentioning Spider-Woman is a good way of bringing me around to... I mean, there is a lot to get through here, but the first thing I really want to bring up because it has been on my mind a lot since I saw Across the Spider-Verse. Jessica Drew appears in this, voiced by Issa Rae. Interesting they've gone for the pregnancy storyline, which I'll come back to, but obviously they've made a black in this. Now, the reaction has been from the exact same people who, you know, what, 18 months ago were scoffing at female characters and things, saying, oh, oh, what if I do Spider-Woman to please the woke people? Oh, you know, think there's loads of Spider-Women, what you talk about. They're now fury about this character they clearly didn't know about and say, can we have Miles White in the next one, please? What a load of nonsense. (laughs) Just keep your nose out if you're not interested. We don't want your opinion. I think those people will always find something to be annoyed about. I do love how much sort of diversity and representation there is in this film. And I'm not just talking about, because obviously we've got we've got Spider-Man India, Pravitar Prabhakar, in Mumbatan, which apparently was invented for this film. Apparently it's not an existing Marvel location, which looked spectacular. And I actually, I went to see, because the worry is, because obviously this is, <laughs> I don't know anything, I, I know very little about, you know, the culture of that part of the world. And this was a film written by two white American writers and so you are sitting there thinking I hope they've done the research here I hope this is okay and I actually I went to see it with a friend of mine who is from a South Asian background and she said they nailed it like the jokes the references it was all done so well and this is something that this film does like it just the amount of representation in it like the number of spider people you see that cover so many different backgrounds and then there's actually one thing I saw that I loved was that in Gwen's bedroom she has a poster above her bedroom door 
door that says protect trans kids. She has a trans flag pin on her bag, I think, and her dad has one. And there's been a bit of a discussion online at the moment about whether Gwen Stacy is trans herself or whether she's just a trans ally. But either way, that is huge because this is something, again, we know that Marvel typically in the past has been quite slow on embracing and representing LGBTQ people. And it's only in the last few years that there's even been any inclusion on that front. But to particularly mention and support trans people is something huge. I don't feel qualified to be able to weigh in on the discussion about Gwen herself, but that is something that I just, I loved seeing that. And I love that they went there when other franchises and other parts of Marvel maybe didn't. So yeah, and I, this is coming from someone who knew nothing about Jessica Drew, didn't have a problem with her, absolutely thought she was fantastic. Did wonder why she was pregnant and it was never brought up. I'd be curious to find out about that story. But yeah, I thought the casting characters were fantastic. And it, it just builds on what Miles Morales was introduced to sort of do, just sort of branch out and represent more people. And this is just taking it further and further. And I can only champion more of it. Yeah. Well, it's funny you should ask about the Jessica pregnancy storyline, because that's another example of, in a different sense, diversity. You know, bringing the whole idea of a working mother Spider-Woman into it. Because anyone who knows it, well, more anyone who listens to Looks Unfamiliar and heard me talk about the old Spider-Woman cartoon will know how much I've loved Jessica since I was really, really young. And basically, this is, I think, about 10 years ago, but they did the series where it was set during the second trimester of her pregnancy, and it was never fully referred to, the backstory. It was just in conversations of people like Hellcat and so on that it was alluded to, that she's had the relationship that hadn't worked out, and the thought, I can hear my body clock ticking. I want a child. I'd better go for artificial insemination. And she'd made the conscious decision to have a child and keep fighting crime while she was doing it. That, in itself was a bit of a first if you look at the whole history of marvel obviously being couples like luke cage and jessica jones that have had families but generally pregnancies have been unwanted or characters children have been pre-existing or it's been you know like sue storm having a full-on expensive celebrity birth and so on and that was a new thing in itself and it's very i think it's very significant to be represented here and also i will say given how much i love jessica if i'd have a problem with her being black nobody else should have yeah that's the bottom line for me. It's a good thing because we've also got Peter B. Parker who is a, a sort of a working father. He's carrying his baby yeah. around the spider society at the same time. So it's kind of like we saw in the first film where it was the first time we'd ever seen a Spider-Man who was sort of out of his prime. You know, he's sort of into his 40s. He's married. He's let himself go a bit and he's, he's, he's you know, he's like 15, 20 years into his superhero career, which is something we'd never seen before. We're now seeing working parents. You know, how do you balance a career and children? You know, that classic <laughs> sexist question that only ever gets asked to, in one way. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember when the BBC drama The Night Manager, when Olivia Coleman was cast in that, she was cast as like, I think it was Tom Hiddleston's boss or something, as like someone high up in MI5 and she said, I'm pregnant. And they said, that's fine, we'll just write it into the storyline. And the character is just pregnant, never mentioned, not part of the plot or anything like that. It's just the character happens to be pregnant while the story is going on. And, you know, that was great to see because it's almost like Chekhov's baby. Anytime a character is pregnant, anytime it's seen on screen, that has to be mentioned, it has to be relevant and the baby has to be born at the climax of whatever else is happening in the story. So yeah, she's pregnant. Will we see her have the kid or will the film end with her just pregnant and she just gets on with her life? I don't know. Frankly, it's not important. It's just part of, you know, part of humanity. That's fine. Yeah.
Spider-Woman. Me too. Uh, are you, uh... Oh, this? We don't know the sex yet. My husband wants it to be a surprise. Uh, <laughs> he's really corny. <laughs> but so hot. Will you adopt me? What? 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 Guys! Can we focus on this fire-breathing threat in time and space, please? Yep, 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 yep. The other main character, though, I mean, looking at, you mentioned Pavetier and Hobie, obviously, you know, you've got very good depictions of, I mean, it feels wrong saying their respective cultures, given that one of them is the UK, but you know what I mean, we can point <laughs> to that and say, it's not, you know, the way Americans normally do the UK. It is bang on, but at the same time, both of them are like annoying older brother characters who think they're cooler than they are, and they're actually a little bit tragicomic, but Miguel O'Hara, who's older, who's in the far future, it's interesting, it's it's more difficult to say whether you think he is in the right or not. Yeah. He is somebody who's prepared to take the difficult decisions rather than try and be a rock star with his abilities. It's interesting because I think, you know, people, we talk about the spot being the villain of the film because he is classically a Spider-Man villain, but I don't think he's the antagonist because if you think about what the definition of an antagonist is, Miguel O'Hara is the one trying to stop Miles from doing what he wants to do. And he is the one chasing Miles in the big climax you know we don't see the spot for like the last 45 minutes to an hour of the film you know he's off doing his own thing I think he gets all his powers in Mumbatton and then disappears and we don't see him again and from then on it is all about Miguel O'Hara and Miles trying to escape from Miguel O'Hara so it's really interesting that this is probably the first time we've seen a Spider-Man be the major antagonist and I'm guessing over the course of the third film he will come around and they'll all join together and the spot will become the big bad at the end of the third film and they'll all you know be friends again but for now in that classic sort of middle part of the story arc he makes a really really good antagonist and again because he's different you know he's part vampire and I love that little reference to Venom about oh a good vampire I'd pay money to see that no not Venom Morbius what am I talking about I'm not going to be allowed back on this after that anyone who mentions Morbius is allowed on any time <laughs> <laughs> but yeah after seeing him at the end of because again didn't know anything about him and this was a really interesting the idea of him sort of dying in another universe and him going in and replacing it and causing an incursion kind of like it's sort of like a Doctor Strange parallel the Doctor Strange from What If where he destroyed his universe because he was desperately trying to save and be selfish and save the love of his life and spend time in someone else's universe and it's interesting that again he did all that for selfish reasons and now he's trying to stop everyone else from doing it including Miles and has kind of got sort of into his own head about you know the greater good I thought he was fantastic yeah and as you mentioned there are hundreds and hundreds of other spies the people in it and there's not even a proper full list out there yet yeah because this is only out in cinemas nobody's really had a chance to catalogue them I was going to say like is this the point at which we gush about our favourite cameos because I imagine we have very different ones well I'm just going to go through some of the more obvious ones that I noticed that really impressed me there was Scarlet Spider who's a clone of Peter Parker Ben Riley, he's actually called Web Slinger who's the Wild West one Malala Windsor Spider UK I think possibly the people who were upset about Jessica being black didn't notice her. <laughs> Sun Spider, who's disabled. Spider Bitch, as she calls herself, who is a criminal Spider Woman from another universe. Although her name's usually blanked out in comics. There's the Bruce Banner and Flash Thompson versions of Spider-Man from other universes. Tarantula, yep. the Julia Carpenter Spider Woman, Peter Parked Car, who's a car. Yeah, oh, God. <laughs> 
Oh my god, I laughed so hard at Peter Parks' car. Is please tell me that's a real thing. It is. Yes. Yeah, that's not all. Oh, that's <laughs> incredible. Because I loved how like Pavitir Prabhakar is basically just like an Indianized version of Peter Parker. You know, I love that it's just it's every single universe. It's some variant on Peter Parker. And Peter Parks' car had me rolling. Oh my god, that was brilliant. And there were a couple of other ones. Spider Bites was really pleased to see, but two that I didn't see and I have theories about. Uh, one was they had said that Takuya Yamashiro who's the have you ever seen the 70s Japanese TV series of Spider-Man no I haven't imagine what you think as a comical joke in your head a Japanese 70s Spider-Man TV series might look like and it well, looks like, like, like a live that. action one yes they specifically said he was going to be in it and I didn't see him so he's clearly going to be in the second one the other one was Silk Cindy Moon didn't appear to be in anywhere and she's too big a spider variant to not acknowledge so clearly they're saving her up as well unless i just didn't spot her well this is the thing i think people are going to the moment this comes out on any kind of digital download thing people are going to be going through it frame by frame and pointing at everyone because apparently the director said there's something like over 200 different spider-man varieties in there and something like 90 of them are named or credited or have voice lines or something so that wouldn't surprise me the one i saw apparently peter b parker's daughter mayday there's an adult version of her somewhere out there which I didn't spot the ones that I love we haven't talked about the big one yet which we'll save for me personally of course as a video gamer the Spider-Man from the PlayStation game who I think is called Insomniac Spider-Man in the film because that's the company that made the game he shows up he's voiced by Yuri Lowenthal I was a little disappointed we didn't get to see the game version of Miles Morales as well because he's a really cool character too apparently when Miles comes into his apartment you can see his roommate playing Spider-Man on his PlayStation 5 but it's actually Spider-Man 2 the new game which isn't out for another six months so that's Sony getting their <laughs> rights in there so you've got a Spider-Man from his own game that's in Miles' universe who Miles also meets in the Spider Society and that's a little strange. Speaking of video games while we're here, there was also in the scene where they talked about canon events and you can see like the scene from Tobey Maguire's film and Andrew Garfield's film, there is a screenshot of the death of Uncle Ben from the Amazing Spider-Man 2 video game from 2014 which is nothing to do with the Andrew Garfield film of the same name. That game was received so poorly like it got such negative reviews the fact that they have acknowledged that is just just evidence of how deep they're going to go with these cuts because that is a sequel the original Amazing Spider-Man film then they made the game which was sort of a sequel to the film and then they made a sequel to that game which is its own story which has no connection to the film of the same name despite coming out in the same year they have the scene from that in it and that's in the Across the Spider-Verse film alongside everything else and it's just it, it just really shows to me that like it feels like Sony and Marvel Studios and I don't know if this is part of some grand umbrella we're all big friends now let's share all of our characters and all of our rights and everything or whether this is just Phil Lord and Chris Miller the writers just trying to cram in as many references as possible but it does feel like they are really trying to intertwine every single superhero story of every medium ever whether it's comics TV films games anything like that and it just it feels like they're trying to make it all one thing where they can all reference each other and cross over as much as they want and they don't have to worry about film series and different variants or anything like that and I love 
love it so much. We also got to mention the shopkeeper from Venom. Yes, Mrs. Chen. Yes. And that isn't even the most exciting cameo. We should just say as well, before we get on to that, we do get all the animated Spider-Man from over the years. And also yep. Lego Spider-Man with oh, J.K. Yeah. Simmons voicing J. Jonah Jameson. J.K. Simmons shows up so much in this. I did think, have they made it a rule that J.K. Simmons has to voice J. Jonah Jameson in every single universe and every piece of Spider-Man media ever? But then someone pointed out that in the PlayStation game, he isn't voiced by J.K. Simmons. So that rule's kind of broken. But certainly on the screen, it seems like he's voiced by everyone everywhere. Well, even in the section with, I mean, except Mrs. Chen wasn't the most exciting cameo, it's slowly building up when they show a lot of variant villains. First of all, there's a cartoon Dr. Octopus voiced by Alfred Molina saying, hello, Peter. Yeah, which I think is just ripped straight from No Way Home, I think. There's a nice setup for, they talk about variations of villains, including an interesting Craven, which is yep. obviously a nice setup for, people might be wondering how they're going to base a film on Craven the Hunter, who, you know, long-standing character he is, isn't that charismatic, so that's clearly saying there's an interesting <laughs> one out there. We also get Typeface, who, it's too hard to explain, but he's a villain who's an evil typesetter, who is always, you know, <laughs> when you see those BuzzFeed lists of the villains they will never do in the MCU, he's yeah. always on them. He has been done in something now, but we get Donald Glover as the Prowler, as was yes. hinted at in Spider-Man Homecoming. Oh, I would not have put a million pounds down that no. he was going to show up. I wouldn't even have been certain that we'd ever see Donald Glover again, because I just, it feels like one of those threads that they put and they say, maybe we'll go down that path. But the fact that not only was Donald Glover up for this, but also Marvel Studios and Kevin Feige were up for that and just saying, yeah, sure, go for it. Like, this feels to me like Reed Richards in Multiverse of Madness, but like on the next level. I was so happy when that happened. Because again, you don't know, is he going to, is that like a variant? Is he going to be completely different if and when we ever see him again? Or is this a hint that maybe Tom Holland might show up in the next? Like that is a big name drop and a big connection to the MCU right there. That got the biggest reaction in the crowd I was in, like of all the ones. Like, oh, I can't, I love that so much. All I can say is it was kept a complete secret and there was me thinking, brilliant, Mrs. Chen was in this and suddenly. Also, can we just mention that this is not the first Spider-Verse film that Donald Glover has appeared in. He had a screenshot of him in his Spider-Man pajamas in Community in the first film. So this is actually the second, no, actually this is technically the third Spider-Man film that Donald Glover has appeared in, which is amazing. Also, speaking of the first film, I don't know if they planned this from the beginning, but it's really interesting going back because obviously the plot thread in this is revealed that Miles's spider came from a different universe, that it came out of the collider and bit him. That's one of the main factors of the new film is the fact that Miles himself is kind of a multiversal Spider-Man. But when you go back and watch the first film in the scene where you see the spider for the first time, it is glitching and it's glitching because it's not in its own universe. I didn't even notice that. Yeah, it's interesting because if you go back and watch it now, it's got the it's got the giant number 42 on it, which we learn is because it's from Earth 42. Although I think at the time that was just a reference to the production company who are called 42, I think. But when you go back and watch it, the first time you see the spider, it is glitching the same way as any being who's not in their universe. And it, you know, when you're watching at the time, you think, oh, that's a cool effect. They're, that's just them going, oh, this is a magic spider. But yeah, I don't know if that was the plan all along or whether they just saw that when they were re-watching it and thought, we're going to make that work. But it's really, it connects them together in such a brilliant way. I love it. One thing that's worth remarking on as well, mentioning that Donald Glover has been in the MCU, no matter how briefly, is the number of voice artists involved in this that are regular, or at least potentially regular, MCU actors. Because as well as everyone else that was in the first one, you know, Heidi Stanfield, Mahershala Ali, Brian Tyree Henry, everyone like that, we've now got Daniel Kaluuya, and also, technically had the cameo in the first one, but Oscar Isaac as 
well. And you yep. do wonder at what stage were these people contracted, given the long production process of animation? Was it before or was it after they were cast <laughs> in the MCU? And now the question, because people are going, like, if we are getting live-action Donald Glover and live-action Mrs. Chen, does that mean that there's a chance that the animated Spider-Verse characters are going to cross over and appear in the next Avengers film? Like, would we see Spider-Woman Gwen Stacy appearing in Secret Wars, for example, and stuff I like that? I want Spider-Ham. I want Spider-Ham in Secret Wars, and I will die on that <laughs> hill. I'm going to tweet at Kevin Feige every day until we get it. I want Spider-Ham in Secret Wars. That has to happen. That is a thing. I will not accept anything less. I will say, actually, building up to the fact that a lot of people weren't expecting the cliffhanger and for there to be a second part of this. Genuinely, they didn't know they were expecting it. it was in the cinema. But I was thinking for most of it, oh, I wish Penny and Spider-Man were and Spider-Ham had come in. And actually, by the time we got to the end, I thought, do you know what? Saving them for the second one, I actually think is working a lot better. Definitely. It's not just, it's absolutely not more of the same. It's not more of the same. And the thing is, I think people would have complained if given how many dozens and dozens and dozens of Spider-People there are, if you focus on the same six again and don't focus on any of the others and don't introduce any of the others. Like, I got so much more excited by Spider-Man India, by Spider-Punk, by all the others, like Spider-Bite and things like that. It's like, I want to find out their stories. I want to get introduced to them as a casual film viewer who doesn't know the comics. I want to learn their stories. And then you can have the third film. You can have the end game where you've got the originals and you've got the new people and they all come together to interact with each other. And that is the big finale. So I, at the same time, I was thinking like, I miss Spider-Ham. I miss Spider-Man Noir. I want to see Penny again. But then by the end, I was like, oh, and cool. They're going to be back for the third one. Oh, you kind of forgot about them. So yeah, I think they've played it really well with that. Yeah. It's interesting thinking about sort of my overall thoughts on the film before we wrap up, because I was thinking, I think I actually enjoyed the first one more, despite the second one being objectively better. It's something that I was thinking about because, as I mentioned earlier, I've been playing a lot of the new Legend of Zelda game, Tears of the Kingdom, which is a sequel to Breath of the Wild, which when it came out in 2017, got lauded. It was called one of the best games ever made. It got called groundbreaking and innovative and like nothing else we'd ever seen before. And then six years later, the sequel has come out, Tears of the Kingdom, and it is bigger and better and does everything that the previous game did, but on a much larger scale. And it's getting slightly lower review scores. They're still incredible. You're talking like average of 97% versus 95% for the sequel. And the only thing I can think of is that the novelty is not there. There's no surprise. People know what to expect and it's brilliant. It's incredible. But because it's something we've already seen, there's not the mind blowing novelty of it compared to, you know, Spider-Man Homecoming came out the year before. We got Spider-Verse. We've been loving Spider-Verse for the past five years. Suddenly the new one comes out. It is equally, if not greater in every way. And yet because we're not getting the thrill of seeing something new, something we've never seen before, we know what to expect now. And so the thrill is somewhat lessened. We're still enjoying it. But it's like the first time you try a new food, the second time you have it, it's still just as good. But the fact that you've discovered something you've never seen before means that the first time is always going to be slightly better in your eyes. And so I think the second one is almost as good as the first. Like I say, I think it's a little slower at points because it is effectively part one of a four hour film. And I think much like Infinity War and Endgame, I'm going to have to watch them back to back. I cannot watch them separately when they both come out. But I think the first one was so perfect. Anything close to that, even slightly, is going to be like, I think this is a 9.5 out of 10 compared to a 10 out of 10 for the first one. It is an incredible film and I cannot wait for part three. But obviously it's lost the novelty of the first one. That's not its fault. They have done an incredible job, but I do I slightly like the first one more. But I'm going to wait until part three comes out before I make my final decision on which one I like best. Oh, they 
mentioned Hammerspace as well. Like that alone is just, that's like a Looney Tunes reference. The fact that they, that's the first time I've ever seen anyone make a reference to that. There's just so many things in this film. I could talk about it for like hours and hours. Okay, well, certainly one thing left for me to ask now. David, if you had the ability to pop up randomly in any Sony Spider-Verse movie, what would you use it for? <laughs> I mean, it's got to be as a backup dancer for Spider-Man 3, doesn't it? Is there any <laughs> other option? I want to be there. I'm going to get my forehead slicked down. I'm going to get the eyeliner and I'm going to rock out with Toby on that pavement. I don't have anything to say in response to that. David, thank you. And what do I say to the Excelsior in this universe? I I don't know. See you for part three. (laughs) (laughs) It's a metaphor for capitalism. So, Cletus has a symbiote. Oh my God. Any other information you're pathologically lying about? Pussy. Excuse me? Eddie needs Venom. She just called me a pussy. He said he didn't need him. That life was better without him. I don't understand. What do you care of? Oh, wait a second. You get out here right now! One, Troy. I'm gonna go as fast as I can so I don't miss anything. this don't forget you can find more editions of it's good except it sucks and plenty more besides including details of my book carnal plinking about me at timworthington.org